hello, hello. How's everyone doing today? Yeah, yeah, probably hitting some little bit. Well, I guess it hasn't been colder. It's kind of heated back up a little bit. I don't, I don't like that. Fine. All right, so today we're going to keep plugging away through Matthew. Now, if you notice, the section we're going to talk about today is not the one we ended on last time. We're going to do a jump. Um, that's just timing-wise. I'm not trying to skip anything or anything. But if you recall, earlier this week, I put up a devotional on the Room Tree Socials that covered the verses we're going to skip on Sunday morning. So it, that's there. In that section, it's about Jesus casting out a demon, a discussion of Beelzebub, all that kind of stuff. But cover all that in the devotional that's up on all the River Tree Socials. So that's why we jumped it, because of timing thing. Whereas it sounds, Advent's coming up pretty fast. So to, to end at a nice spot in Matthew, we had to kind of do a, a quick jump here. So today we are going to continue down, and in that previous section, like I just said, Jesus has an encounter with a demonic man who is possessed by a demon. Jesus cast out the demon. There's a discussion about, well, how can Jesus do this? If, you know, is, he must be the prince of demons then, and there's a whole discussion there. And then so this is what happens immediately after that. So then, immediately after that session, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This feels like a little bit of an overreaction at first when you first read it, right? Because Jesus has done signs before. Why, why does he have this strong reaction here? Like this could be an indicator of a couple things. Possibly, Jesus is worried that he... The miracles are starting to overshadow his message. Because that was something that he was very adamant that he didn't want to have happen. We talked about that back in the spring. So potentially to these group of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, Jesus' miracles, what Jesus can do for them, is starting to become more important than the message, than the kingdom of heaven side. The kingdom of heaven is here side of things. That flows into potentially the second option, which is the people's natures that they're willing just to follow whoever, as long as they have power, as long as they can do things for us. We will follow the most powerful person we can see, whether that's the Messiah, an idol, whoever it is. This thing can give us what we want, we'll follow it. Jesus doesn't want to go down that path. Another indicator could possibly be the nature in which this question is asked. So as we talked about, Jesus has done miracles before to kind of show and highlight authority. But the previous section, right before, was an exorcism, a big miracle. But the way this is phrased, the way this comes off, it feels a little bit, oh yeah, well, prove it. Show us what you have. It almost feels very gatekeeper-y. Like you see someone reading a Thor comic, and you're like, oh, well, if you like Thor, then tell me the top five most powerful Thors and the names of their weapon. Otherwise, you're not a Thor fan. Right? That, that's kind of what the Sadducees and Pharisees are doing here. The, oh, you can do miracles. Well, jump through this hoop. Do this miracle for us. Do this miracle for us. Jesus isn't, isn't going to do that. But I think that's why this, this ask of Jesus elicits such a strong response from him. Response is, you're going to get nothing except the sign of Jonah. There is a lot of debate about what the sign of Jonah is. And a little bit of homework for you. This is a section that is paralleled in a few other of the Gospels. Go read these parallel sections and just see how the sign of Jonah is treated in each one. It's slightly different. But 
in this section, in the Matthew section, the son of Jonah is taken as follows. Four, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So for Matthew, the sign of Jonah is this connection with the time underground. Jonah's time in the whale, in the great fish, Jesus' time dead. That's where this sign of Jonah connection is coming in. So let's recap the story of Jonah. Jonah is called by God to go to the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah is told, you are to preach, you are to try to redeem, you are to try to save this city, save these people. Jonah really doesn't want to do that, because Jonah hates these people, and so Jonah runs away. It's thrown off the boat, eaten by the great fish, has this kind of three-day argument with God before finally deciding, okay, I will do this. And there is some cool allegories here of the water, so... In ancient times, water was thought of as kind of the scariest thing you could be. You might think of it as the equivalent of like a long, dark hallway for us now, right? Like, you don't know what's there. It's kind of scary. That's where the ghosts live. Water was thought of the same way in that time, especially kind of ocean water, big sea water. It was referred to as this primordial chaos. You didn't know it was under there, but it was going to get you. And so Jonah like literally goes through this primordial chaos, agrees to do this, gets spit back up, goes to Nineveh, preaches what is hilariously a terrible redemption message because Jonah doesn't want to do it. But eventually, the city repents. Jonah goes away and kind of pouts about it. And we'll get back to the pouty Jonah here in a second. But so that, that, that's the rough story of Jonah. And so this passage here, Jesus is highlighting that, okay, the Jonah story really is looking forward to the time between my death and my resurrection. That time period is going to equate with that kind of primordial chaos that's going on. But Jesus takes this idea and kind of bends it forward a little bit. So, the men of Nineveh, the city that Jonah saved, will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, something greater than Jonah is here. Right, think about Nineveh. Think about the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh is one of its capital cities. Assyria basically did everything wicked and evil to the children of Israel. They destroyed their lands. They burned everything. They took everyone away in slaves. They raped. They murdered. They pillaged everything. The Assyrians in history are kind of renowned for their extreme brutality. They are some of the most violent group civilization has ever been. That's people God wants Jonah to go save. And so... Jonah kind of doesn't want to, does a really bad job of it, and cries and pouts when it's over, but still they repented. The city of Nineveh turned to God, according to Jonah. And so now Jesus is saying that that group of people, the kind of worst people in history, are now judging you, because you're not repenting. Because they repented via a terrible prophet who didn't want to do his job, did a bad job at it, and pouted when it was over because he didn't want to do it. And yet, that group repented. And you have the literal Son of God standing before you, and you are not repenting. So that group is coming and judging you. And then Jesus goes on. Oh, picture these ears. Jesus goes on to give us uh, an another story, another example. 
The queen of the south will rise, the, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So this story, Jesus is referring to an event from 1 Kings chapter 10, where a queen from the south, sometimes called the queen of Sheba, sometimes, we, we don't know, but what we know is a queen from the south, a queen from Africa, comes up and tests Solomon's wisdom. She, has, she is kind of regarded as the wisest person around, and, and now she's hearing rumblings that, well, this person up here, are they, are they wiser than me? Oh, I'm going to have to check this out. I don't know how I feel about this. But she comes up, gives Solomon this big test, and Solomon passes. And at the end, she realizes that, wow, this, this wisdom is an amazing gift from your God. It's a gift from Yahweh. And she ends up praising God, and it's this really kind of cool story. But Jesus is using these stories to highlight kind of just how stubborn the people are being. Because these two stories are highlighting how people believed, believed in God, believed in God's power based off of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of it, based off of prophet who didn't want to do their job, and based off a queen who thought, there's no way I cannot be the smartest person around. So two people that kind of didn't want to believe end up believing end up highlighting the power of God. And yet, this group is not believing with God literally standing in front of them. And then Jesus does what seems like a weird jump. We get this kind of analogy that seems unconnected, but we'll, let's read it and we'll kind of go through it. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the arid places seeking rest, but it does not find it. Then it says... I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. What is going on here? Well, the common rendering or reading of this text is that it's about people not believing and that the evil spirits are other gods, false gods, that the people are kind of letting into their lives and even if they kind of push out a little bit, they're not fully closing the door on because they were able to kind of walk back into the house. But in context, I think there might be a different reading that I, I think fits a little better. So some scholars are starting to take this passage as what if the unclean spirits in this passage are referring to the Sadducees and the Pharisees themselves? Because they are what is immediately in the area pulling the people away. Remember, this entire section has been framed around Jesus versus the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It was really kind of started with the yoke discussion. Yoke of the Sadducees, Pharisees, yoke of Jesus. And kind of this is trickling down here. So potentially Jesus is using language of something that just happened, an exorcism, to highlight these false teachers, to highlight how dangerous this group really can be, to highlight how dangerous this yoke really is, because it's pointing away from salvation. It's pointing inward, saying you have to do it yourself, but also you kind of have to rely on this group of people here to do it. You can't. You're not relying on God to do it. 
Because this is really Jesus warning that this way of life, this yoke, will only lead you down a path of worse and worse. Because in this example here, even the, they push away the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you know, if we're going to stick with that example, they're gone. But nothing comes back in to take the house. Jesus doesn't fill in the house. The house is empty. They can just walk back in. They're not fully closed out. That's what Jesus is getting at. You have to fully embrace. Can't have any holdover. Can't have any leftover for Sadducees and Pharisees in this case, but those teachers that point away, those things that point away from God, get in. So, put it all together. What? Oh, I'm sad. I didn't put my ghost picture up earlier. Ghost picture! So what, what is Jesus saying? What, what, what are we to do all this? Well, I think there's two big things that are jumping out here. First one, Jesus is kind of laying down a gauntlet, basically saying, you don't have any excuses. We have everything we need. We have absolutely everything needed for salvation, for love, for grace. And more, we don't even have to really believe on our own. That belief will even come from God. Even that is a gift from God itself. So you can look back at the stories of the Old Testament, the high one Jesus highlighted. He's just highlighting like they had so much less than you, and they believed. So why aren't you believing? All comes down to God and God giving us blessings, these gifts of belief, of faith, of all of that. Jesus is really kind of coming down hard with this one, being like, you, you have no excuses for not believing right now. And the second one I think Jesus is highlighting here is beware of people pointing away from Jesus. That analogy, the spirits, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Be aware of groups that promise very nice, easy solutions that are very simple. It'll often end up worse anything that doesn't seem to be following Jesus, doesn't seem to be that yoke of Jesus. Push it out. Get it out of the house. Lock the door so it can't come back in. So, how do we do this? How do we take this step? Well, you're probably getting real sick and tired of seeing this chart, but the chart's back! How do we do this? You thought the chart was gone. No, it's not going anywhere. Seeking Jesus daily. Seeking Jesus daily. Sitting with Jesus. Talking. Just being present. That helps us recognize Jesus' voice. Know Jesus' will more and more. Understand what is of Jesus, what is not. That's the way we do it, is being with Jesus. So it's been, what, two, two and a half months or so since we put this up? How has this been going? How has this progression of seeking Jesus daily been with you? Are there, is there a new practice you've started, maybe? Is there an old practice you kind of let drop that you're kind of picking back up again? Is there something you're really kind of devoting to, whether it was something you did before, you're like, no, I'm going to really do with this. How has this been going? How has been your daily time with Jesus? 
So take a minute or so, just sit and reflect on it. How has your time with Jesus changed or grown or whatever in the past couple months? What we're going to do, hopefully, is I'm going to start asking people to come up and talk about that. So get ready. I'm going to start calling on people. Come up. Not today, but, you know, like over, over the course of a couple of months, you know, directly have people come up and just talk about that. Talk about how their time with Jesus is developing. Talk about some of these other patterns and habits. How are they growing? How are they developing in you? Because we want to be inspired. We want to hear from each other how this is going, how this journey is going together. Like one of the best ways to do that is to hear about it. So you realize, oh, I'm not doing this alone. There's other people doing this with me. Let's encourage each other in it. So start thinking of examples of how these are playing out for you. I'm going to find you. I'm going to ask you to come up here, and I will make you come up here. I won't make you, but I'll ask you to come up here and share, because that'll be a really fun thing for us to do, just to hear from each other. Join me as we pray.